Section 25. Trapped. Now I'm scared. It isn't clear to me how we respond to this. My email, Cornell is wired. Feeling nostalgic and trapped, I decided to go visit old lecture halls and campus sites. Cornell was used to the snow, and even with all the warnings of a big storm, most students were going about their evening. From the hiring center in Hollister Hall, I made my way over to the Upson Hall's basement, where I had worked the terminals and the mini-computer room for computer science majors. It was still early enough in the PC revolution and connectivity that most students were still doing their work in these shared facilities. The online version has a photo of the Deck 20 mainframe I monitored on my Friday night shift. The layout of Upson had changed dramatically from my time there. Walled cubicles of VT100s with shared line printers were replaced with long tables of Macs. There were new Next cubes that were getting a lot of use. There were even laser printers that had magnetic Vendicard readers that stored cash to pay 20 cents per page for laser printing. When I worked in the Eurus Hall computer room, I was lucky enough to have the only public laser printer on campus, but alas, it was only connected to the IBM mainframe. It was the end of the day. The room was buzzing. People were racing in and spending a few minutes at a Mac and racing out. At first, I couldn't tell what they were doing, and with no student ID, I wasn't able to use a machine. After watching a few students, I realized they were all following the same flow. Each quickly sat down at a Mac and pulled out a floppy disk from a backpack, slung over one shoulder, none of this both-shoulder-carrying thing the kids do these days. Shaking the mouse to wake the machine up, the Macs were set to launch only one program called Bear Access. Cornell's mascot is a bear. Students typed in some ID, inserted a floppy disk, and then quickly navigated to mail. I later learned that students were storing their mail on the floppy because Cornell mail servers were running the POP protocol and were not storing it after the initial download to keep costs down. As dinner approached, Upson vacated, and a quick look outside made it obvious that everyone was hunkered down in dorms and apartments for the evening. I asked the operator if they were closing due to weather. We would never have done that. And he assured me he would be around because he needed to get the hours in that week. I was staying across the quad at the Statler Hotel, so I headed into College Town to eat. After a quick stop at Suvlaki House, I went back to Upson. It was completely empty. The operator was reading from the textbook Folian Van Dam, the standard text on computer graphics. I know this will sound strange, but I used to work here about 10 years ago, I said. He looked annoyed. I see you're taking graphics. Is it Professor Greenberg? While I had not taken the class, all my friends did, and I was also friends and classmates with Professor Greenberg's son, which I was quick to mention. He remained bothered. Well, I work at Microsoft, and I'm here interviewing students for internships next summer. He interrupted me, grabbed his backpack, and pulled out a resume. After a few minutes of typical discussion about opportunities and how to interview and more, I asked, can you maybe show me how bare access works and tell me how you're using the computers these days? The online version includes a screenshot of bare access. We pulled up chairs at a Mac. He logged on. I stopped him and asked where and how students got an ID. Thinking back to the punch card with tguj at cornellea.edu, I received orientation week freshman year. Cornell IT, CIT, had built an identity system such that it maintained the canonical mail address for students and faculty and routed mail to the appropriate server. The email system in use at that time, as was typical in most organizations, academic or otherwise, was distributed and heterogeneous. 
Different departments each ran their own mail servers or different types along with different ways of assigning email IDs. CIT created logon IDs so students could always be referenced to by a single at cornell.edu mail address, no matter where their mail actually went. Every single member of the university community had a login ID. This was the first example of a solution to a problem that was a product under development at Microsoft, Windows NT. The business or enterprise version of this problem was known as a directory service and was a rather heated battle between NetWare and the new entrant, Windows Server, along with the EMS project previously described. But at Cornell, this was already working. Most companies in the early 90s were not yet using email and definitely did not have a directory. Launching Bear Access, I was immediately struck by the similarity to America Online or Prodigy. Here was a Mac running graphical software oh, and TCP IP networking, another technology that PCs did not routinely run, where the icons were all information sources. The resource available, all a click away, included email, library, the university bursar, chat, access to the directory for finding people, the campus store, and something I was totally familiar with, CU Info. I got excited. Tell me about CU Info. Ten years earlier, CU Info was a magical behemoth. It was thousands of lines of IBM 360 assembly language, along with archaic languages such as Rex, to massage the data feeds. Running on the mainframe, out at the airport, accessed via VT100 kiosks throughout campus with no login required. With CU Info, text-based information such as the weather forecast, course roster, and campus events were available. It was years ahead of its time. The online version has a screenshot of the CU Info system accessed via a DEC VT100 terminal. Instead of accessing it via a terminal, clicking on the bare access icon, I launched something called Gopher. Then right before me was something vaguely familiar. Instead of typing menu numbers like a phone tree, I was navigated an information service with double clicks. And there was the same weather forecast I remember being coded my, by my fellow operator a decade earlier. But what was this gopher? A few months earlier, Cornell migrated the entire CU Info system from the mainframe to running on the open source project Gopher, developed at the University of Minnesota, of course. The IT effort in, involved took the CU Info information and organized it into a gopher hierarchy. Academic life, administration, dialogues, library, student life, campus, Ithaca, and so on. And within each of these, there were further hierarchical topics, such as under library, there was schedule, information, electronic books, and the online catalog. I learned that the CU Info hierarchy itself had grown to over 800 pages. That's the outline of the information, not the information itself. Gopher looked a lot like the early builds of the new Explorer in Chicago. From my Microsoft vantage point, adding insult to injury, the CU Info Gopher server was connected to a slew of other like-minded Gopher servers around the world. In other words, it wasn't only that Cornell was doing this or even that other places were, but there was a network. That network on the internet was growing at a rate of 3% per week. Information was searchable using Waze, W-A-I-S, an early internet, open source, content indexing and search platform. Search was a key, but theoretical part of IAYF in Cairo. But this was an area where literally no one at Microsoft was actually working on a product. While hardly today's Facebook, 
I was treated to a demonstration of search across the Who Am I service. What used to be an entirely impossible task was now routine. Find the person Pat in Arts and Sciences School, class of 96, who lives on College Ave. Using the information students voluntarily put into the directory, the results just appeared. There was an ongoing debate on campus about privacy, and soon thereafter, searching was curtailed. The early internet was rather quaint in that way. Chat was another service access from Bear Access. Using the newly familiar, in tech circles, Internet Relay Chat, or IRC, protocol. Later that evening in my old dorm, Founders Hall, I watched as a group of about 10 students in one computer room chatting all together with other students around the world. Chat wasn't for fun, as I learned. TAs were using it for study and course-maintained IRC rooms as well. This was all incredibly exciting, but it was also humbling and scary. My baseline experience was AOL, a walled garden with a monthly fee, or the Barron Enterprise Network, which best case was a fairly heavy email running on clunky shared file servers, as Exchange was still years away. A revolution had taken place. Back at Microsoft, Russ Siegelman and others were working to define an online service for Windows. And yet here was one that was already rivaling AOL, built entirely on free software at university and growing much faster than AOL. The snowstorm was turning to the biggest surprise learning experience of my early career. More importantly, it was opening my eyes to the speed of change. I'd been at Cornell less than a year ago, and yet everything I was seeing was new. It wasn't only the software, but students and faculty and how they interacted with computers and information. My new operator friend was on the ball. He went through how difficult it was for keep, to keep the Macs running. Like many places, after each use, the Macs were reset, and all the files and programs were deleted and restored to a new state. This happened dozens of times a day. This hack was clearly an opportunity for Windows. At least it should have been. After almost three hours, it was getting late, close to 11 p.m. But before I left, we looked up my old boss, who ran CU Info and IT, Steve Warona, in the directory. I sent him a, hey, I'm in town note. We set up a meeting the next day at Day Hall. Late that night, I went to the hot truck on West Campus. I ordered a double PMP pep, poor man's pizza. Johnny's hot truck invented French bread pizza, so the lore goes, and waited in the blizzard. Two students were in line, busy talking about the new Visual C++ that had recently come out. It was kind of surreal. The online version has a photo of Johnny's hot truck. I said, hey, I know a bit about Visual C++, trying but failing to remain composed and with some hint of modesty. The student seemed excited. One told me about writing his first Windows program. It was like an advertisement. After some back and forth, I told them what I did. He asked if he could run back to his dorm in the snow and get a copy of the product so I could sign it. I was not sure who was more excited by this conversation. This was the strangest thing that had ever happened to me. The excitement of the moment was soon awash in the nausea that comes from eating hot truck at midnight as an adult. The next day, the school was knee-deep in snow and mostly shut down. I wasn't getting out anywhere. I headed over to Day Hall to see Steve Warona, who was then the assistant to the CIO of the university. Steve was the original programmer for CU Info with an office right inside the small computer room in G20 Eurus Hall, where I worked as a freshman. For about an hour, we talked about how far things had come since he originally wrote CU Info. Hearing Steve's acknowledgement of the many challenges that lay ahead was super interesting. The university was wrestling with privacy, independent organizations had different ideas about information sharing, and even labor unions were concerned about how access to information might impact employment. 
Steve then set up a small camera to show me a demo using, as I recall, one of the earliest pre-release Connectix Quick Cams, which was a Macintosh-only peripheral. Super frustrating that it didn't run on Windows. I had only seen the camera in the press. Interestingly, an Excel product manager had just moved there, so I was able to secure one at, a to- at the time back in Redmond. It was an amazing technology in search of a use. Then it met the internet. He launched a program on his Mac called CUCME, fiddled with it a bit, and then a window opened up. This was a small, black and white, moving image of a classroom in North Carolina. A few minutes later, more windows opened up of other classrooms, two in New York, one in Washington, D.C. The online version has a photo of CUCME running compared to the size of the iPhone 12 phone screen. Suddenly, I was looking at a five-way video conference made up of tiny postage stamp black and white windows at about 10 frames per second, live, from around the country. Everyone dialed into the same traditional voice conference line. For a half an hour, students did what students do in a learning environment as teachers ask questions of each other. Watching them share information was incredible. For Steve, it was new, but becoming routine. The project was called Global Schoolhouse, supported by the National Science Foundation and the Department of Education. After the classroom, Steve spent a good hour explaining the technology they developed. The project created a video protocol, a multicast network server, and client software. They were already doing student exchange programs with Europe even. IBM was helping to make a Windows version. Everything else was on Macintosh. It was almost more than I could take. Video conferencing built on the PC, as we showed in IYF, seemed forever away, and for sure no one was really working on it at Microsoft. Microsoft's first entry, NetMeeting, was still yet to be conceived and would not include video conferencing for years. Steve showed me one more demo. Switching to his Windows 3.1 computer, he launched a program called Cello. Cello was developed by the law school at Cornell and was the first Worldwide web browser, or just browser, for Windows. A web browser looked like Gopher and CU Info, but used a different protocol and different format for information. Where Gopher looked like a file explorer or the Mac Finder, Cello used hypertext and links to pages with nice formatting and looked more like Windows Help or Apple HyperCard. Because of Cornell's mixed computing environment, Steve explained they also used Mosaic on Macintosh. Steve was super clear that he expected the browser to supplant Gopher. Even though he loved the information hierarchy, the browser's use of images was just too good. Cello and Mosaic were the new World Wide Web, WWW. The online version has a screenshot of that original Cello. At the time, Mark Andreessen and Eric Bino were developing Mosaic at the University of Illinois, which was the first graphical HTML browser. By the end of 1993, It was running on all the major platforms in early beta form. On the internet, it seemed not only was everything free, but everything was in beta and was developed by students at a university somewhere. That was something I had to get everyone back in Redmond comfortable with, along with the reality that everything ran on every operating system. That afternoon, February 13th, 1994, I went back to my room at Statler and wrote a fairly breathless memo entitled, Computing at Cornell and the Internet. After apologizing for being a Cornell cheerleader, I detailed my personal history of computing at the school and the evolution of what I'd seen. Along with the memo, 
I shared a series of recommendations, specific things we could be doing to improve Windows and servers and desktop apps to make them internet-friendly and even great for the internet. Most of them were directed towards Chicago, the Windows 95 project that was under development. The online version has that memo, computing at Cornell on the internet. I sent the memo as a word attachment in an email to Bill G with the subject line, Cornell is wired, to get his attention. Wired was the new magazine at the time, and to be wired was synonymous with cool. I also back-channeled the memo to Brad Silverberg and John Ludwig, emailed John Liu, who was one of the two lead Windows executives. I did this to make sure no one was blindsided by a report, since it could easily be seen as me saying, hey, add even more stuff to Chicago that is already late. Bill, doing what he always did, immediately forwarded my email to the set of key execs working on Chicago and platforms, proving it was a good idea to back-channel people. The thread was sent to Paul Moritz, who sent it to the email exec Tom Evslin on Exchange and EMS, and even to the Windows evangelists in hopes of getting them to drive an engagement with developers to use Windows. Pretty soon, I was getting emails from University Relations, Microsoft's connection to school and colleges, and they told two friends, and so on and so on. I was comfortable with my email being forwarded around, but this one had taken on a life of its own. It clearly touched a nerve. The online version has my email, Cornell is wired. The most actionable response I received was immediately from John Liu, who told me I should go talk to a guy over in NT who was working on this stuff. He copied Jay Allard, email Jay Allard. Jay sent me a note saying something along the line of, dude, where you been? And attached a memo he had just started circulating called Windows, the next killer application on the internet. The online version has that memo. I read Jay's memo while still trapped at Cornell. It was everything I could have hoped it could be after getting so amped up over the internet for 48 hours. Even the title of the memo was so subtly clever. It said that Windows would be part of the internet, decidedly not the other way around. While too many came to remember this memo for the use of of the words embrace, extend, and innovate, the reality was always the other way around for Jay, and I agree. The internet was larger than Windows and cannot be contained by an operating system. Cornell was already proving this. Windows was just an application on the internet. Also misunderstood was the use of killer. Killer app was a phrase used broadly to lend legitimacy to a new platform. A necessity for a platform to gain traction was that it have a so-called killer application or killer app. VisiCalc was the killer app for Apple, Lotus123 was the killer app for MS-DOS, Excel for Windows, and so on. The turn of the phrase was that Windows would be what could accelerate the internet as the internet's killer app. There would be much truth to that. 